Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. Welcome to another episode of Off the Bench. For those who are new here, my name is Galena. I'll be your host for the day. For those who've listened to us before, our other wonderful hosts, Justin and Sophia, are not on tonight. However, we're still going to have a great discussion today with Rick Panning, who is Senior Healthcare Consultant at ARUP Labs. Uh, maybe you've heard of that place. I hear it's a great place to work, and um, I know we use it as our reference laboratory. Um, and Rick has over 40 years of experience in the medical laboratory sciences field. Today, we're going to be talking about some major trends in the medical laboratory science community um, and how they affect you, the active member of the field. Really, regardless of what your job title currently is uh, or where you're working, in a hospital, in a clinic setting, uh, are you a technical specialist, supervisor, uh, we're going to be really talking about big ticket items, the the shortages, um, the feeling that you might have of um being overwhelmed, exhausted, underappreciated, um, the different factors that come into play to all those feelings. Um, and what's the future? And of course, we can't, we can't predict the future, but hopefully we can have a positive discussion about what we can do to help. So welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you very much, Galena. Wow, 40 years in the medical laboratory sciences field. Um, what's that journey been like for you? So um, I'll start at the very beginning of it. I When I went to college, this is not ever where I thought I'd end up. I went to college to be a music major. Um, and although I kept involved in music throughout college, I, I dropped the major within the first year because I found that having to do the work, I didn't enjoy my music as much <laughs> as when I just got to do it for enjoyment. So, um, and I ran into somebody on campus who was also a freshman, and they told me about this career in clinical laboratory science, something which many people would probably tell you they had never heard of, and I had never heard of it. And I, I really enjoyed science and everything in high school. So I did, I pursued it, and um, it, for me, it was a really good decision to do that. So I did graduate with a, a bachelor's degree in clinical laboratory science. I did an internship for a year at what's now called Regions Hospital in Minne in St. Paul, Minnesota. At that time, it was called St. Paul Ramsey, but I did a one-year internship there. And then I've just, I worked for four years at that lab as a, in hematology coag in urinalysis. And during that time, I decided that eventually I wanted to move into management. So I went back to school while I was working full-time and got my um, MBA, my master's in business administration with a healthcare specialty. And as I graduated, um, or as I was in the middle of that program, I got a job to be a supervisor in another lab in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area in hematology, coag, and urinalysis. I kind of stayed with the same um, technical area. And once I graduated with my MBA, I was able to move up into 
an administrative position in that lab. And then through the course of the rest of my career, I've, I've stayed in the Minneapolis-St. Paul market, but I, you know, I moved into a director position at, a, at another hospital in town. I eventually um, went to the same organization that Galena now works for and became um, like a vice president over lab services for a healthcare um, integrated health system. And since then, I've worked for a number of other <laughs> integrated health systems in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Uh, my wife, um, who is no longer with us, would always give me a bad time that I worked for everybody in town. Um, it's not quite true, but almost true. But I worked for um, integrated health systems and really focused on how I could bring systems together, how I could integrate the services across clinics and hospitals, um, and so stayed very involved. And I retired from my full-time career last October, October of 2020, um, during COVID, of course. Um, but I knew that I was not the type of person who could go from working 60 or more hours a week to zero. Um, and starting in January, I started the job that Galena referred to. I'm working part-time. That was very important to me to have flexibility in my life as a semi-retired person. And mostly I'm working virtually from my home here in a suburb of St. Paul, but I'm working for the lab ARUP, which is located in Salt Lake City on their consultative services team. And I'm a, I'm a senior healthcare consultant working with laboratories throughout the country to help them with a variety of issues that they're dealing with, either operations or outreach, um, a variety of areas that we help people with. And like I said, mostly virtual from my kitchen table or my desk in my house. But um, occasionally then we, I do have to travel to visit client sites to help them um, with that work. So, and during, at the same time, I think the other thing I'll mention is I've been very involved from the very beginning of my career. Actually, I was recruited by the director of the clinical lab science program at, at Regions Hospital at the beginning of my career to be a student member of ASCLS. And I did it having no idea what ASCLS was or what I was getting involved with. And I have been a member ever since. So I'm actually approaching, <laughs> I think I'm at the 45-year member <laughs> level within ASCLS. And I've been an active member throughout that time, very involved at the state level, the region level. At one point, probably 12, 13 years ago, I was actually president of ASCLS nationally. But I've stayed very involved, also involved in organizations like CLMA and AACC. So I guess I'll end there for now and let Galena take over. <laughs> Thanks so much for that uh, uh, background, Rick. It really uh, speaks volumes to hear um, that you are still such an active advocate throughout multiple organizations and in the medical laboratory science community. Uh, your voice is incredibly valuable. Um, another um, reason that I we really wanted to have you on this podcast and and discuss some of these you know, sometimes very uh, tough um, and emotionally charged topics. You know, some of your background that you've 
just um, listed off, you had some buzzwords for actually some of the topics that I, I wanted to um, talk about today in trends. And, and I'm going to try hard uh, to separate trends co- caused by the COVID pandemic versus overall trends in the medical laboratory science community. For example, uh, we were talking about uh, workforce shortage. I feel like for the last, you know, ever since I became a medical lab scientist in 2014, that's always been an issue, workforce shortage. But what the conversation was pre-COVID versus what it is now uh, has shifted, at least from my perspective. And I wanted to get yours on it. So when we were talking about workforce shortage in 2014, 2015, and I was attending conferences, uh, you know, we talked about um, a retirement population in our community um, that's not being replenished at a fast enough rate. We also talked about, you know, the working in the laboratory setting is exhausting, sometimes unforgiving. There is less flexibility with hours you're working, your weekends. And so uh, people often uh, seek a, a you know, they, they've done their time and now we're going to move on and become a supervisor, become a tech specialist. Um, you know, for me, I moved out into uh, the IT uh, side of the laboratory. So that was the conversation, you know, some two plus years ago. And now that those things are still there. Um, but what we've moved into an extra level of exhaustion because of the pandemic and now we're seeing an increased number of traveling techs and we're seeing an increased number of job hopping that's happening as a means uh, to make our worth more valuable with compensations. Uh, have you, have you um, noticed that trend nationwide? Yeah. So that, that trend does exist nationwide and parts of it are quite variable across the country. Um, different parts of the country that that's shortage and the issues that you just mentioned are more severe. Um, it exists in Minnesota where you and I are from um, somewhat to a lesser extent, in, interestingly enough, but it exists everywhere. And I'm going to step back a second. You know, I've been around a long time and I've actually worked through a time earlier in my career where there was a surplus. Um, where the situation was stuff that such that there were more students being trained and coming out of all the programs. There were many, many, many more programs. In Minnesota at one time, there were 11 MLS programs. And um, wow. now there are three, you know, so things have changed dramatically, but there were times in my career where there was a surplus and people had a hard time finding jobs. Um, and that, it's hard for maybe you to believe right now yeah. and for the listeners to believe. But over time and pre-COVID, I'd say for the last 15 to 20 years, the shortage has gradually gotten worse. And it's gotten worse for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is, as I already alluded to, the number of schools have, especially for the MLS level, less so for the MLT level the number of schools have dramatically decreased. So therefore the supply part of lab is not nearly as adequate as it used to be. And that contributes to a shortage because we now need more people than are coming out of school. 
We also have the situation where there's been a lot of consolidation in the lab, in the healthcare industry, which of course directly affects laboratories. So, you know, when I started in my career, there were many, many more individual hospitals in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And now basically we have four health systems which have combined most of those hospitals. Some of those hospitals have just purely closed, but others have combined into a health system. Um, so there's a lot more consolidation, which involves then centralization. And so some of that consolidation for a brief period, for a part of this time has resulted in less need for people because you consolidated multiple labs into one lab, a, a, a good example over time. And it was part of one of the questions that um, Galena gave me ahead of time. Um, so for instance, where I last worked in my career at Health Partners, during my time there, so I can be blamed for part of this, um, we had multiple microbiology labs in the system. Um, and ultimately we centralized all of them into one microbiology lab at one location in the system. And that involves people having to change locations where they work. In some cases, you become more efficient and you don't need as many people when you centralize into one location. And so then it's, you know, you don't need as many people, but there are openings in other parts of the lab. Um, and so people have to make changes. People have to make decisions. Sometimes they make decisions to leave and go elsewhere, as Galena alluded to. But ultimately, the reasons you're doing it and the context that you're doing it in is you're trying to be cost efficient. We're going to eventually get to talking about reimbursement for lab testing. So you want to be as efficient as possible. But sometimes when you consolidate, you can provide better service. You can afford to put in technology that you wouldn't be able to do at multiple sites, such as full automation in a department. Um, you can provide a microbiology service that maybe is 24 seven, whereas often microbiology labs were seven days a week, but maybe only day shift or extended day shift into the evening. But there's many things, you know, there's a lot of other contexts that are put in place that not everybody always realizes the whys behind why you're doing these things. And one of the things I tried to do, and the only people who can really tell me or tell us if I was successful at it, you have to explain the whys, the W-H-Y-S, <laughs> that's what I mean by that, behind what you're doing. Not everybody's going to always agree with what you're doing, but if they understand why it's being done and that there's a good rationale and it was thought through, you'll tend to get more support for those types of things. Um, but we are now in, you know, the shortage over the last 15, 20 years gradually got worse, um, because, you know, like I said, there were fewer schools. There are more people that were at my end of the age spectrum preparing to retire. So you're losing people at one end. You're, you're not getting as many people at the front end. And then people do make job changes. Now, I would look at the change that Galena made. I'd still believe she's in the lab industry. She's just in a different part of it and in a very important part in IT to support the people working in the lab. 
But there are many people who left the profession also for a variety of reasons. And then COVID came and just totally accelerated that change because, you know, the working conditions, you know, related to COVID, we're all aware of the busyness, because in in addition to all the testing you're currently doing in all of your labs, you had to take on COVID testing and develop COVID testing, which had never been done before. And then depending on which wave of COVID you were part of, that was a very high volume testing that was being added on top of everything else. And so you have a shortage, you're taking on more testing, people are having to work extra hours, put in more time. The working conditions, unfortunately, didn't didn't keep up in a positive way considering everything that was happening. Now, again, I'm not going to say the next thing to blow my own horn, but I think I've always been very aware of the conditions that people are working under and what resources they needed to be successful. So just related to COVID, um, in the organization I worked in, most of the COVID testing that was not needed immediately, it could have a 24, maybe to 48 hour turnaround time. We centralized in one location in our organization. We had a central lab offsite. And that lab at one point was doing over 3,000 tests a day. And now recently, because Minnesota's having a big spike, is again above 3,000 tests a day. Well, early in COVID, we could absorb the COVID work because the other, a lot of our routine testing was decreased in volume because patients were not coming in. We were not doing as many surgeries. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why routine testing had decreased. So we could take on COVID because we could absorb it with because our other workload was down. But then as we thought we were coming out of COVID last summer into fall, the regular work started to rise and ri- rose really fast back to pre-pandemic levels. But then we started to have another two, one or two additional spikes of COVID. And so as I was leaving Health Partners, I worked really closely with the central lab and we actually justified adding 10 FTEs in that laboratory. And I think we looked at all of our labs to make sure we were appropriately staffed because you can't expect people to keep doing more and more and more with less and less and less. And that's unfortunately what's happening throughout our country. And I'm not saying I perfectly was able to deal with that, but it was always top of mind for me. And that's That is a reason why people leave the profession. They retire early. They decide to move on and work with a traveling agency. And those are all valid things for people to do, but it all adds up to um, contributing to our workforce shortage. So I'm going to stop for a second, take a breath. and I'm assuming Galena is going to have some follow-up questions for me. I have far too many to count. There seems to be uh, a discrepancy um, in what I'm reading in the community, uh, right? So as you stated, uh, people are working five days a week. They're working 12-hour long days plus mandatory overtime now because how bad the shortages are. We are seeing this rise in traveling techs, which are a fantastic um, way to uh, to help, um, you know, whatever we we can get in the labs. That's great. 
However, you know, there's training time, uh, you know, it's the company culture is becomes more transient. And so those permanent workers in the laboratory uh, even have more exhaustion because now um, they are training and supporting and they're the seasoned um, employees uh, managing a very transient workforce. And there seems to be a discrepancy between that trend and how laboratorians are compensated for their time and work. And I'll give you an example. This is, uh, again, from a, a, a source online um, called Reddit um, of uh, comments from medical laboratory professionals. And uh, one says that uh, the lab just notified, or the laboratory was just notified that um, the medical lab scientists are getting 1% raise this year um, to contrast with nursing, who would be getting a 10% raise. Um, and, you know, can put that in an inflation or uh, and compare that then to how valued we feel as a profession seems discrepant to the work that we're doing. So, a couple of thoughts that I have there. Um, first of all, um, so I think there's a discrepancy between what lab professionals get paid versus other, what we might regard as equivalent jobs in healthcare. Nursing is your kind of best example because it's the highest numbers of people in healthcare and they're the most visible to the public in addition to doctors. Um, I would kind of dispute, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are places that experienced exactly what this Reddit comment said. I've been fortunate to work throughout my career where there wouldn't be a discrepancy, that level of a discrepancy between the percentage of a raise that the nurses got versus the raise that the laboratory people got, but more that there's just a difference over time the nurse, if you look at a graph, for instance, nurses' salaries for RNs, and some RNs are two-year and some RNs are four-year, have risen at a faster rate over time um, compared to laboratory professionals and other professionals in healthcare. Lab's not alone in that regard. But um, it, that is a truth. I mean, it is a frustration. It's been a frustration of mine. But I think we've done our best to, to to try to keep that percentage level of raise as high as we can get it. But on the other end of it, and people don't like to hear this, the amount of money we get paid for healthcare and specifically for lab testing over time has gone in the other direction. So we may be doing more testing, but we're getting paid less for each of those individual tests, whether it be from private insurance or Medicare or Medicaid. And that continues to go down and not in the right direction. And we're about to experience an additional down at the beginning of next year. So we have, we have conflicting things happening out there. And it gets frustrating. Um, I hear all the comments and I read them myself about you know, forced overtime and all these types of things. I tried in my career as a leader to avoid that as much as possible. Again, I'm sure I was never 100% successful, but that's not a good work environment. That's why I always tried to work hard to make sure labs were appropriately staffed. And then 
the use of traveling techs can be very valuable for organizations. Um, really, in my last job at Health Partners, the only area where we actually had to reach out and bring in traveling techs was histology. That area had become a severe shortage. And it was very, very hard to recruit. But in the clinical lab, we really didn't need to use travelers. We were fortunate enough in our organization to get enough people, maybe not as fast as other people might have liked, but we were able to get them. But histotechs, we ultimately had to hire from a traveling service. But we were also very fortunate that one, if they stayed long enough and they liked working for us, we could then hire them as non-traveling techs. Um, so there's a lot of competing things going on out there. But one of the things the lab has struggled with maybe more, really more than the rest of healthcare, is the amount we get paid keeps going down. In the rest of healthcare, at worst, it stays stable. It doesn't go up or it goes up for other components of healthcare. But lab, for a variety of reasons, which we could talk about in a whole nother podcast, has gradually continually gone down and it's about to continue to go down even more. And that's a struggle because then organizations have to make decisions about what lab tests do we do? What do we send out? Well, sending it out is, is not always cheaper, but it's a way for you to limit how many staff you need, but it's not always cheaper. Uh, but you have to make decisions that you'd prefer not to make um, because you're just not getting paid what you used to get paid for the same lab tests. Then let me ask you or or uh, this controversial question that I see pop up very frequently. If a laboratory can afford to hire uh, eight travelers uh, who get paid significantly more or cost significantly more, why can't the lab instead just raise permanent staff salaries to increase retention? I see that a lot. <laughs> and it's a very fair question. So first of all, and I think you kind of clarified it as you said it, the people who work for the traveling agency don't necessarily get paid more than the people in the lab that they're working with, but that organization gets paid more. That doesn't all go to the employees. So Yes, the la you know, if I'm hiring travelers, I'm going to pay a premium price. That premium price is not going to the people. They're probably getting paid similarly to what my my hired people are. But it's a very valid point and it's why I tried to avoid it as much as possible throughout my career. If you it's just better to first of all staff your lab properly and that's extra money, but it's the right thing to do rather than have to use travelers because it's going to cost you more. So, but then the second part of the question is what you asked, why can't you just pay your people more? And it's been a constant struggle throughout my lab leadership career to get salaries, those percentage increases each year higher. And we would always do the best we could. But again, you have limits because the money coming into a healthcare organization or a laboratory, just because you're going to pay your people more doesn't mean you're going to get paid more. And again, I know people don't like to hear that. Um, I see the same thing happening in public education. 
and there's a lot of that in the news recently. Um, teachers who are under a whole different level of stress than lab people and healthcare people right now. Um, you know, why can't we pay teachers more? And we should be paying teachers more. But if you pay teachers more, the money has to come from somewhere. And it's either coming from your state or from your real estate taxes. So people have to be willing to then sacrifice on the other end in order to pay for teachers, in this case, to pay for healthcare workers. But unfortunately, the, the revenue side doesn't keep up with that. And so it's a constant struggle. So us as lab leaders can do the work to make the case for better wages, bonuses, salary increases, whatever is going to be the, the right thing to do. But the money coming in to pay for that is not ever keeping up with that. You're telling me pizza parties just won't cut it in tourism. <laughs> not at all. Pizza parties and all the things you do on the soft side of things are the right thing to do, but it's never going to replace being paid appropriately for the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you for that. The, there is kind of a sense uh, of impending doom, I feel, uh, with the exhaustion and the travelers and all these trends that we've talked about. Can you tell me a little bit more about what happens if substituting a workload with traveling techs isn't enough? You know, you've reached your limit. What are the consequences for a laboratory when when our staffing can no longer support the lab workload? How um, and and how those decisions are made to I mean to redirect um, your services or do you shut down clinics? What does that decision tree look like when when traveling techs aren't enough? Well. And traveling techs are never going to be enough. It's the same population of people, but some of those people have made a decision to leave a regular full-time job at whatever place they were working, and they've decided to become a traveler. It didn't raise the number of people in the lab workforce population. You're just redistributing them. So it's it could be a temporary thing that you're trying to fill a hole with, but there aren't going to be enough people in a traveling tax. They're also recruiting and trying to get people. There's never going to be enough because we don't, again, we don't have enough people coming into the profession so that even, this is going to sound like an excuse and it's not the intent. So even if you want to increase your staff, even if you want to increase your salaries, the people that you're trying to hire aren't necessarily, they don't exist. And basically, people are moving between organizations. They're moving from organization to traveling. We're just redistributing the workforce constantly, but we're redistributing a workforce that over time is smaller. So again, that's, <laughs> so there I gave you the doom, um, part of the equation. And that's what we're up against. But then the your question gets to, how do we make the decisions that we have to make um, in today's reality. So I'll use some real life examples. Coming out as in the midst of COVID, and again, I'll use the organization I worked for full-time in my last organization, we did have to close clinics. It became a reality that you don't have enough staff, not just lab staff, you don't have enough doctors, you don't have enough nurses, you don't have enough medical assistants, and you don't have enough lab staff to cover all the 
I'll use clinics as an example. So you have to make a strategic decision about which clinics do you close, where are they located, how can you redistribute patients and workforce to the other clinics that you've kept open. But it's a reality of the healthcare financial situation. Um, it's just a reality. Um, and then in the in labs themselves within hospitals or healthcare systems, we do make decisions, and I referred to one already, where you try to centralize things. So as an example, when we closed microbiology at one of our hospitals, one that Galena knows very well, um, over time, we've redistributed other work into that laboratory. Now, it wasn't microbiology work because we had moved that, and the people doing the microbiology work had already moved to another site. But we, we, we kept trying over time to keep bringing work back into other sites. And we have to make decisions about being cost effective um, because you have to keep your costs within what you're being paid. So you have to be efficient. And that results in some things needing to be centralized at some sites, site or site within your organization. It's just the reality of the healthcare market today. And everybody's doing it. I wasn't alone in doing that. Everybody's having to do that to keep their head above water financially. We have kind of a broken financial reimbursement system in this country that does not recognize the value of healthcare in general, but in our case, laboratories specifically. And so it's a constant struggle, and we're having to do the best to, to keep our heads above water. You've, uh, we've kind of touched on this other trend several times already, uh, where individual hospitals are now merging with larger healthcare systems and consolidating. You know, this was uh, well pre before COVID. And in fact, I was um, looking at some uh, uh, publications earlier today about whether that is still a trend. Um, and although overall, uh, mergers and acquisitions in number are decre have decreased in the last few years. Instead, what we're seeing is um, larger companies uh, undergoing mergers and acquisitions. So uh, it, it's happening on a very big picture scale. Now, we've talked about you know centralizing a microbiology department. Um, one of the comments um, that I found is exactly to this. Um, the hospital system expanded uh, from when I originally started um, eight, year ago, eight years ago from three hospital satellite campuses to almost now seven. And now we've distributed the staff. There's not enough staff for the core main campuses anymore. Um, and even with shift bonuses on top of overtime, um, you know, people are exhausted. So Tell me a little bit more about how this trend of mergers and acquisitions um, broadly affects the, you know, me. If I'm working in a core laboratory in a hospital, yes, we talked about consolidation, but other other um, other items that are impacted in that in my daily life when a merger and acquisition happens. So first of all, I'm going to back up for a second to maybe give a little bit of context 
to why mergers and acquisitions happen. And the reasons I'll give don't always pan out, but they're the reasons that people do it. There's the That's their intent of what they're trying to achieve. The reality of whether they actually ever achieve it is another thing. But by but by having more consolidation, more hospitals in a health system, more clinics in a health system, all those types of things, the intent is as you become larger, and there becomes an endpoint in this, your purchasing power is greater so that as you're out there buying supplies, equipment, everything else that you buy that's not people in a health system, you can get better pricing. Um, for those things and pay less. There's an intent that as a health system becomes larger, there's better better care coordination or what I would call continuum of care. So if you have a large health system, small hospitals, large hospitals, specialty hospitals, clinics, both primary care and specialty, urgent care, nursing homes, whatever it might be, there's kind of this better care coordination because things are within the same system as patients move between sites and different levels of care that they need. You can coordinate that better within a system that then between hospitals or systems that are not in the same organization. Um, You can, with for small hospitals, another example, you work in IT, Galena, but small hospitals don't have the same access to electronic medical records on their own than large hospitals or large healthcare systems have. So as smaller hospitals that surround larger hospitals and are more geographically dispersed come in, they then have access to the technology that they they would never have access to in their in their um, by being an independent small hospital. So there are a lot of reasons and people are trying to achieve it The other thing they're trying to achieve, and some organizations achieve it and some don't, is to lower cost for patients, to lower what I would call the total cost of care. Um, And in Minnesota, we have a good measurement of that. Um, There's a, a dashboard that comes out every year, and it just came out this week. It's a comprehensive dashboard that's online in, in, in the state of Minnesota. And it looks at that total cost of care, and it looks at every hospital and healthcare system and clinic system in the state of Minnesota and shows those whose costs have gone up in the last year and by what percent, and those that have gone down and by what percent. Um, And just as an example, again, using the organization I worked for, their costs, their total cost of care went down by about 11% over the last year. That benefits patients. I'm even though I retired from that organization and I'm now a Medicare Advantage customer of that organization. I actually saw my premium go down. It's going to go down next year, um, and I'm going to get more for my dollar because that healthcare system did a good job of of, of um, lowering their total cost of care. But that doesn't get to the impact on the people that work in the organization. And again, the way an organization achieves some of that total cost of care is you don't duplicate some of your services between all your hospitals. 
do you really need to do X, Y, Z at every hospital? Maybe, maybe you centralize it at a couple of centers of excellence. We do the same thing with lab. We can't afford to offer the same services duplicate of each other at every location. It just, we don't have the money coming in to pay for that. And in some respects, when we centralize it appropriately, we can do a better job of being efficient, being productive, giving a higher level of service if we did it right um, than if we keep it out there at all the other sites. And all of those things affect people. Um, because if you're moving things around, in some cases, you have to move people around. And we don't like to move our cheese very much. Um, and have to, you know, I used to work on the west side of the Mississippi River, and now you're asking me to work on the east side of the Mississippi River. And I live here, and now I have to work there. I totally have always understood all the personal stuff that happens when you're asking people to make changes. But again, I get back to the reality that people don't really want to hear. The reality in healthcare is is kind of ugly right now. And the money coming in doesn't cover everything we want to do. And that's specifically true with lab um, at this point in time. I think it's great to hear, again, like you said, the why of uh, why consolidations happen and all the reasons you've listed, um, you know, better service, better technology, better access to um, equipment, uh, uh, reduce costs, you know, by increasing our purchasing power. Um, we've really talked a lot about how this benefits the patient. And I think it's really important to address that. Um, as you've said, though, on an individual level for somebody working in a hospital, it may be hard to see beyond that because um, really at the end of the day, um, our welfare, personal welfare is also really important. Right. And now, again, like you said, we're asking for you to increase your drive time by 30 minutes, um, or we're asking you to um, leave your favorite department, right, as, as the alternative. And, and now if you loved uh, microbiology, now um, you are going to move to chemistry, your analysis, what, whatever other department. So we're asking an individual in the laboratory to make a very tough decision um, that can perhaps make them feel less valued as part of these large ticket decisions that get made. I think it's a very uh, interesting contrast. And I don't deny anything you said and <laughs> all those things, you know, um, when I first came to Health Partners in 2015, and again, I'm not trying to pass the buck, I, I agreed with the decision. I maybe didn't agree with the timing of the decision. The decision to move microbiology and centralize it had already been made. But then I had to carry it out. And I think the timing was the worst part of that decision because not everything was in place to make that move successful. So not only were we asking people to move, and I used to work on this location in this suburb of Minneapolis, and now I have to go to downtown St. Paul to work, but we didn't have the systems in place and the technology in place to support them to be successful. Um, ultimately, that all happened and it made it much better. Mm -hmm. But we asked people to not only change and move, 
but we made their work life harder. That was always disappointing to me, and I personally feel bad about that. But that's where I back up, and I think it's up to leadership, whether it's vice presidents of lab or directors or whatever your titles are, that has to be top of mind all the time. You have to pay attention to the business side and the financial side. If you don't, you're, you're going to be out of a job right off the bat. But there is the people side, and you have to think of all those things and try to minimize all those impacts that you refer to. And I think some organizations do that better than others. Um, just recently, because I still am very involved in the lab profession in Minnesota and nationally, I was looking at all the openings in lab positions across the state of Minnesota. And as of last week, on Thursday, because that's when I was looking at it, there were almost 800 lab openings in the state of Minnesota. Now you have to understand, we have some very large healthcare systems. We have the Mayo Clinic. I mean, we have a lot of, but 800 open lab positions across the state of Minnesota. And if I just looked at the integrated health systems in Minneapolis-St. Paul, it varied from a low of 50 openings at one healthcare institution to a high of 170. And those healthcare systems are similar in size. Um, wow. We are in a, cri I'll use the word crisis, situation in terms of staffing because we haven't been able to increase the supply side as much, nearly as much as we need to. And like you said, circumstances and retirements and everything have speeded up the people making a decision for their own peace of mind, balance, whatever you want to call it, they're making the decision to do something else or to find an environment that maybe gives some of that balance back. And that is a tough nut to crack right now. It's not unique to the laboratory. I'll be very honest about that, but it's healthcare-wide. Um, and we're seeing it at the physician level also. So it, it affects all levels of healthcare. And it's a big challenge right now that we don't all have great answers for. Right. I was just going to say, you know, fixing uh, the staffing shortage can be uh, uh, five podcasts on its own and uh, trying to brainstorm the solutions because it, it's um, so expansive. Um, well, and right now, I think it's the two things happening at the same time. And, and they kind of contribute to each other, but we have a shortage. The shortage is not getting better. The labs are busier. We've added things on top of it, and then we've added COVID. But it's the mental health aspects bumping up against, because of all the stress and everything that we've talked about, happening at the same time that we haven't been able to improve the shortage. And the shortage has been, like I said, it's it's not brand new. It's 15 to 20 years. It's not just the 2014, 2015 that you referred to. It's been probably for almost half of my leadership career that the shortage has been an issue because of all the things I've already talked about. And we have to, we have to crack that nut and we haven't yet done it. Wow. You know, 
throughout our conversation, uh, it's come up multiple times that we have to uh, offset or compare or keep in mind with our desire to raise wages for laboratory staff or compensate them for the work that they do. Um, and, and how that desire contrasts with needing to also, um, be mindful of a laboratory and how we get paid and reimbursed. Um, and that those two are competing desires rather we have to keep our costs down. We want to pay our, um, pay our, um, employees more. And this is a really good time to discuss, I think, uh, in brief, how laboratory laboratories make money, how, how so that they can pay their employees more. And then really um, about how PAMA, and we've done other podcasts discussing in full what PAMA is, but really how that is another emerging trend, if you will. It's already been here with us since 2017, but how that continues um, to to kind of create this divide versus with what we're getting paid uh, for our laboratory services, what we what versus what we can give back to our employees for their hard work. Yes. So when you talk about laboratory reimbursement, the driver of the vehicle is the government. How we get paid by the government, whether it be the federal government in Washington, D.C., or the state government, in our case, in St. Paul, Minnesota. So we get paid, you know, a, a certain portion of our business. And in some healthcare organizations, that portion of that business can be 40 or 50 percent of their business being Medicare and Medicaid, which is federal and state government payment. Um, we have been paid by Medicare since 1984 on a fee schedule um, where they developed a fee. Prior to that, we build what we, whatever we, kind of whatever we wanted to build or bill. It was the wild, wild west. And we got paid for it. But then Medicare put in a fee, you know, put in a fee schedule, which decreased our reimbursement. And lab is, again, for whatever reasons, one of the only if not few components of healthcare that over time since 1984, which is a long time ago, where our reimbursement has gone down. Over time, our reimbursement has gone down. At various times, we were supposed to get cost of living increases and all that kind of stuff, but we didn't. And we're getting paid less. And then in 2014, I believe, but it took a, it took in effect what Aglene has already said in 2017, there was a new law, um, unfortunately called the Preserving Access to Medicare Act, um, but it had a lab component to it that on the surface said the government should pay for lab at market rates. You know, what what do the private insurers pay? Um, And that all sounds good until you get into They passed a law that said that, but in reality, how they implemented it drastically cut our government reimbursement. Um, The first phase of it started in 2017, and that was a three-year phase. The government gave us, quote-unquote, a break in 2020 because there was something called a pandemic. Um, 
and but now in 2000 and so we got a break this year and then but now in 2022 there are labs that could see a decrease in their medicare revenue of up to 15% per test and it'll vary test by test that is huge that's a huge decrease in government reimbursement but then you say well but we all we have private insurance we have blue cross blue shield or we have Health partners or Medica or what, um, and you know I can't even think of all the private insurers right now, Cigna and others. Unfortunately, they take their cue from what the government does, and if they say, "Well, if the government can get away of cu- cutting this, we're also going to cut our reimbursement," so they cut their fee schedules, and it's just a rapid cycle that keeps repeating itself. And I actually testified on this before the Ways and Means Committee a few years ago to kind of educate them. This was in Washington, D.C., to educate them about this just isn't Medicare. If it was just Medicare, it would still be bad, but it wouldn't be awful. Um, <laughs> but it affects all the other payers because they they take their signal from Medicare. And most states do their Medicaid reimbursement based on whatever the Medicare reimbursement is. In Minnesota, that's the case. They pay exactly what the federal government pays. There are many states that pay 50% of what the federal government pays. So I'm giving this dire picture of lab reimbursement that's really just, it's in a bad, bad place. And that kind of leads to, that's why all the lab professional organizations, ASCLS plus almost all of the other lab professional organizations, have this big push on right now to talk to your senator, talk to your representative that we need to avoid this and we need to put this on hold at least until the pandemic is over. And only God knows when the pandemic is going to be over. But we cannot do this. We shouldn't do it at all, but we cannot do it at this time. So there is, you know, people can argue about, you know, why has lab leadership not done anything? Why have the professional organizations not done anything? There has been constant activity to to undo this, but Congress really hasn't responded or listened. And that maybe sounds like an excuse, but we can do all the advocacy we want, and we do a lot of advocacy. But if government doesn't respond, if Congress doesn't respond, because what has Congress done in the last two years? Basically nothing, um, except argue. Um, we are It's a tough spot, and I don't like to be at this point in the podcast that'd be giving this dire news, but it is a reality right now that we need to stop and it needs to be at least put on hold, if not go back in the other direction. Because every time we get cut in reimbursement, and if we get cut by 15%, I mean, in the first three years of, of PAMA, the organization I worked for until I retired, during those first three years, we saw a 13.8% reduction in our Medicare reimbursement. We didn't see the full 15, but we saw a huge reduction. And there are implications to that. If you have less money, you have less money. We deal with that in our personal lives. If the amount of money coming in is down, we can't do all the things we'd like to do. Um, And I, I, I hate to be so negative, but we would love to pay our people more we would love to hire more people. And I think 
some of us in leadership have done the best that we could over time, but there are realities to doing that. I could go forward and make a proposal for a 5% increase, which might not even be enough, for all lab staff. Where's the money going to come from? Something else has to go down for that to go up. And maybe there are things that should go down for that to go up. But I think this combination of paying people properly and staffing properly, and I actually view the staffing properly more important because if you don't staff properly, the mental health side rears its ugly head. I think you've done a great job at at leading to my uh, next set of questions when it comes to <laughs> comes to Pama, um, really, because um, I've seen that that there has been a, a misconception about the what how do we put it um, a misconception of how an organization or how leadership fights for us as employees. Right. So um, to a laboratorian, um, they want recognition, visibility, wage increase. Um, and instead, what they're seeing is um, organizations uh, instead uh, doing this, you know, campaign to call our local senators um, when the threat is for lab- labs getting their funding cut. So, so to a person that isn't heavily involved um, in, in explaining or understanding how reimbursement affects what they do on bench, it may be really hard or discouraging, disheartening. Um, and, and they might think that uh, we have kind of our priorities wrong of who should we be fighting for. But what you've really alluded to is by fighting to stop PAMA cuts, what we really are fighting for is for the mental health benefits of our lab staff. Um, and so I totally agree with that. And I'm probably going to say a few things that not everybody's going to like. Um, as a profession, the laboratory field, we have multiple professional organizations out there representing us. We have ASCLS, which is what sponsors this podcast. There's CLMA, there's ASCP, there's ASM for the microbiologists, there's AACC for the chemists. We have all these multiple organizations. But as a profession, the percentage of people actively involved in their profession as a member is much lower than almost every healthcare profession. If you look at the nursing profession, close to 100% of nurses belong to the American Association for Nursing. If you look at the pharmacists, a very, very high percentage um, are members of their professional organization. And the reason I bring that up, I'm not trying to blame people, but when there's a large voice like nursing has or pharmacy has, that that voice is heard over other voices. We have a very low percentage, less than 5% of lab professionals are members of a lab professional organization. And it's the lab professional organizations that are out there trying to fight for these things that we've been talking about today. Um, You know, things right now that we're fighting for are stop this PAMA thing. This is ridiculous. We need more funding for schools because we need more schools with more students to help with the workforce shortage. 
we need funding for the school itself, not just to fund to get more students in, but the school itself. The people retiring from the labs, they're also retiring from work from being professors. So we're not going to have the right number of people teaching either. So we need, we, I, I get frustrated sometimes, and this is the part people aren't going to like. Why aren't you doing this? Why don't you do this? And I think it's totally appropriate that as a leader, I should be doing things. But we all need to do it. Our voice needs to be heard much louder. And when only a very small percentage of our people are involved, and I know right off the bat right there, it's I'm already working 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And now you want me to be a member of a professional organization and go to meetings and all that kind of stuff. But we don't have as loud of a voice as the other professions in healthcare, And that hurts us. Um, and that hurts us on Capitol Hill. And we hear it when we go. I go lobby every spring up until last year when we couldn't lobby anywhere. Um, we go lobby and we talk to people. And sometimes we're having to educate them, first of all, who we are. And then lobby for the issues. You know, we need our our salaries higher. We need support for, for more people in the profession. We need our reimbursement to not go down. But sometimes we're educating people from scratch because they just don't know our profession. Um, so, I, you know, it's been a long time since I was the person working on the bench. It's been over 40 years. But I worked on the bench, but I worked on the bench at a different time in the late 70s. That's how long ago it was when there was a surplus of lab people. So I, you know, I, although I felt I worked hard and I worked hard for eight hours a day in hematology and then I went home, it was a different situation than today. I can't even compare it. But now over time, all these things have come together to just make things worse. The workload is much higher. The number of people in the profession is much lower. The amount that we're getting paid is much lower. All these things have come together as kind of a perfect storm um, that we're fighting against right now. And I hate, hate to be at this point in the podcast to be negative, but there are people who are working hard to try to change some of these things. But again, we need a more united voice in our profession, and we need more people speaking that voice. And that's why right now these messages are coming out about contact your senator, contact your representative. They need to hear from a lot of people. I, we have learned over time that literally they count how many phone calls they get. They count how many emails they got on an issue. And if it doesn't reach a certain threshold, it doesn't get acted on. And so that's why there's been such a big push right now, because something could happen in 2022 that ratchets, ratchets this down to another level. Rick, I knew coming into our conversation that it was going to be a heavy one. Um, <laughs> we were going to talk about, um, unfortunately, trends that are disheartening, um, you know, especially for new professionals that are eager and graduating and are going into the field and, and kind of seeing these trends play out. 
um, right away might uh, make them think, hey, did I choose the right career? Um, so I think that it can be overwhelming um, because these issues are so much beyond one individual. But it sounds like that as an individual, there are things that I can do in order to play my part in helping alleviate some of these trends. One of the ones you've just discussed, uh, you know, the big push to contact your local senators uh, regarding PAMA will include link links uh, on the Off the Bench podcast website um, for how to get involved, you know, full write-up of the situation, our resource links. Um, if you're not going to, if you don't usually go to the page and listen to it in Apple Podcasts, um, it's ASCLS.org slash delay dash cuts. Um, that's or even if you go to the ASCLS.org website, um, I'm sure, like you said, there's many other organizations that have calls to action like this. Uh, so if you belong to a different organization, you know, go on their website. I'm sure um, you'll see necessary information there. Um, the other thing I heard you say, Rick, is you know, one voice isn't enough, and we need more voices. So a lot of the or a contributing factor to why we haven't seen the change in the government uh, and as acted upon by the government is that our voice isn't big enough. So it sounds to me like as a newly graduating student coming into the field, that's already exhausted and understaffed um, to find still the, the take the passion that you had when coming into becoming a med lab scientist, right? You're excited to learn, to contribute, um, to be a scientist, um, to keep propelling that passion and really get involved in the advocacy piece, which really comes through, I think, for me at least, the great avenue was by joining an organization. Um, you know, I joined ASCLS, but there are many others, like you stated. You know, and a comment I would make is, so even though I gave some dire news about things, I still believe in the profession and I would do it over again. I've had a very good career. I still, um, I think becoming active away from work is very rewarding. And I think it can really help your career. You know, over time, I've developed, you know, people that I've met from all over the country um, across the state of Minnesota, of course, but all over the country, have developed a network. And that network has helped me multiple times in my career to become aware of maybe the next thing I want to do or the next job I want to go for. Um, I was not the type of person, unlike my late wife, who's worked at the same place for 30 years. I've worked at multiple places, but I've stayed in the industry. And being a member of ASCLS or CLMA or whatever organization it was, but ASCLS has been the most consistent, has helped me innumerably throughout my career in, in many, many ways. I get to advocate for the profession. I get to learn from other people. Um, I get ideas from other people. And just having a network sometimes helps with the mental health aspects. You have a low period and you just reach out to those people that you know can lift you up or they're going through the same thing you're going through. So you don't have to feel bad all by yourself. Um, but there's so many advantages to being involved, but then that makes the voice louder for the profession. That's the thing we need the most right now. 
Um, we need a louder voice. And then the other thing I would say, and every other lab leader in other <laughs> hospital and healthcare organizations in the country will kind of probably want to find my car and slash my tires. Um, don't be afraid <laughs> to raise issues up to your bosses. Hopefully the bosses are doing a good job of listening and being aware of what's going on in their organization, but not everybody is. You, you can't be afraid to be a voice. That doesn't mean you're a troublemaker. You're making people aware and, and not leaders can't be aware of everything. They should try as hard as they can to be aware of most things, but they can't be aware of everything. And so letting them know things that people are struggling with or people things that need to be fixed or whatever it is, don't be afraid. Be an advocate both in the place that you work, but also with the government that's making decisions for us. Lots of lessons in this podcast, right? I just heard, uh, you know, don't be afraid to talk to your leaders, but at the same time to recognize that your immediate leader doesn't have the solution to workforce shortage. Uh, neither le- you and yourself and me, we don't have the solution. This pro- uh, Our issues um, expand so much more than our microcosm that we have built for ourselves. And um, so really uh, little steps, what little steps we can take, I think would really help. So um, again, uh, reach out to uh, to an organizational website such as ASCLS um, to find out more about contacting uh, your senators uh, or get involved. Uh, you know, like Rick, you, Rick, like you said, Joining an organization can really continue your passion for the field when even past the exhausted days, because eventually you come and you're working at the bench and you're short staffed and your work may some days feel very repetitive and uh, you can um, more, uh, I would say, uh, some days is like babysitting an instrument um, rather than doing science because uh, on this day, my instrument broke down and I just have to uh, dink around with the probes all day. And and really, um, the benefit for me of joining an organization is instead then uh, later in the evening, yeah, you are taking time away, uh, but then you get to completely switch up what you're doing and you get to um, plan events and um you know, find fantastic speakers, you know, like you, Rick, uh, who can uh, educate um, and motivate and really give back to, it gives back to you as a person and it gives back to the community. And hopefully, slowly, um, we can counterbalance our um, the negatives that we feel in our day about the exhaustion and the short staffing. And instead, uh, at least contrast it with positive feelings of accomplishment, um, of camaraderie, um, and and slowly but surely, <laughs> hopefully walk ourselves out of this pandemic, uh, out of these reimbursement cuts, and out of this workforce shortage. <laughs> well, and I think something you kind of referred to, but there is a social aspect to being involved also. Um, we do have fun also. We do serious work. We go to continuing education. We advocate at, with the government. But we go to a brewery and learn about the science of brewing, but then drink beer. Um, we we have social events at our state and national meetings. We 
there is a social aspect to this also, which is very important because you can't feel like you're in it alone. Um, and the social aspects can help with the stress and the mental health side of things too. Um, and we all need that. I couldn't agree more. Rick, thank you so much for your time. Um, and especially being brave enough to come <laughs> on to talk about these topics. I, I know uh, that uh, I, I brought up some touchy topics. Um, oh. <laughs> so I appreciate that. The reality, and even though Galena only notified me of this on Monday, um, <laughs> I agreed to do it anyway, even though I didn't know what the time frame was at the time. But <laughs> I so appreciate it. Everyone, have a wonderful uh, holiday weekend uh, or week coming up, um, or happy December. Uh, hopefully, wherever you are is not full of snowstorms like it probably will be in Minnesota. <laughs> All right, that'll that is all. Thank you, Galena. Thanks, Rick.